ان الحمد لله نحمده ونستعينه ونستغفره ونعوذ بالله من شرور انفسنا وسيئات اعمالنا من يهده الله فلا مضل له ومن يضلل فلا هادي له واشهد ان لا اله الا الله وحده لا شريك له واشهد ان محمدا عبده ورسوله amma ba'd so last time then we were looking at the name of allah allah and we spoke about the meaning of that name and that it comes from aliha ya'lahu al-ma'lul the same as abada ya'budu al-ma'bud meaning the one who is worshiped and so the sifa the attribute of al-uluhiyah is derived from the name allah so allah is the one who you single out with all forms of your worship you make allah single and unique in all of the worship from your heart from your limbs from your tongue you direct it to allah alone that is the meaning from the name allah al uluhiyah the singling out of worship to allah alone but how many people think about that that allah the meaning of that name it requires of you al uluhiyah that you single out allah with every form of worship and that is the core of the da'wah the core of the religion is that tawhid the singling out of allah with every form of your worship so remember that every time you think and you remember the name allah the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam emphasized this point of worshiping allah alone heavily emphasized whenever he would send the prophets and messenger uh, the uh, uh, companions whenever he would send the companions to other places to give da'wah to call the people to islam it would begin with this affair of al-uluhiyah tawhid la ilaha illa allah that none has the right to be worshiped in truth except allah subhanahu wa ta'ala so that is the meaning to remember and recollect Allah is al-ma'bud the one to be worshiped alone and that is why he created us for his worship today then we have a look at the name ar-rab ar-rab another name that everybody will be familiar with the name ar-rab and you hear people saying ya rab 
يا رب يا ربي الرب In English, they may say generally in the translation, the Lord. Ar-Rabb, they often say in the translations, the Lord. <coughs> However, when you look at the actual meaning of Ar-Rabb, then this particular name of Allah indicates or from it is derived another sifa, another attribute because like we said all of the names of Allah have meanings there's no such thing as names without meanings all of the names of Allah have meanings behind them they have attributes so the attribute from the name Ar-Rabb is Lordship. Lordship in Arabic known as Al-Rububiyyah. Allah indicated Al-Uluhiyyah, singling out our actions to Allah alone. Ar-Rabb indicates Ar-Rububiyyah. So then the question is, if Al-Uluhiyya, the worship of Allah, means that we single out all of our actions, our worship, from the tongue, from the heart, from the limbs, all of our worship, our actions, we single them out to Allah. That's Al-Uluhiyya. So what is Al-Rububiyya? Many a time we've mentioned it, anyone? Al-Uluhiyyah was to single out Allah with our actions. So Al-Rububiyyah is to single out Allah with His actions. Correct. Al-Rububiyyah, it is to do the Tawheed of Allah. To single out Allah with His actions. That is what you understand from the name Ar-Rabb. But how do you single out Allah, Allah alone, in His actions? What are the actions of Allah we're talking about? Who can give us one simple example of an action? Creator, creation, Al-Khalq. Allah is Al-Khaliq, He is the Creator, and you'll notice many of the other names of Allah, they come under the name Ar-Rabb. So Al-Khaliq is within Ar-Rabb in that regard, because Ar-Rabb, the Lord, one of His actions is that He creates, Allah creates, He is the Creator, the one who made all of this creation. So He is Al-Khaliq. That is from the meanings of Ar-Rabb, creating creation. So we single out Allah with His action of creation. Meaning, do we believe that anyone besides Allah created all of this universe? Absolutely not. 
Allah alone did that action. We single out that action to Allah alone. The creation of the heavens and the earth and everything that exists. Another action of Allah sustaining and providing, giving us the rizq. Allah is ar-raziq, ar-razzaq, the one who provides for us. Who is it that provides for us the water, the rain, the vegetables, the food, the air that we breathe? Who provides all of those things for us? Where does that come from? That is the action of Allah alone. There's nobody else who can make the rain fall. There's nobody else who provides the air for us to breathe. This sustenance and these provisions, all of these things that we need for life, they are provided to us by Allah. So we single out Allah and we believe and we affirm, only Allah provides for us. Not the dead in their graves or the dead imam or this or that, Allah alone provides all of this for us. Nobody else participates with Allah in that. Nobody else aids Allah in that. Nobody else has any role with or alongside Allah with that. Allah alone provides for us and sustains us, gives us the food and the drink that we need. So we single out Allah in that action. <coughs> Giving life and death, we single out Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala with the action of giving life and death. Nobody else can give life and death besides Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So once again, we single out this action to Allah alone. There is nobody else who participates in giving life or death. There's nobody else who has any role or helps Allah in this affair of giving life or death. Rather, Allah alone decrees the life of one and the death of another. You remember, we mentioned in previous gatherings, the example or the story of a man who claimed he could give life and death. They mention a story that there was a man, some type of king or ruler, and he claimed he can give life and death to things. He can make things come alive. He claimed he could do it. So he was there in front of all of his people, saying to them and claiming that he can give life and death. And he said to them, I'll prove it to you. I'll prove it to you, he said to them. So he got a jar or like a bottle, some type of container. And inside of that container, like a bottle or a jar, he put some rotting meat in it. Some old rotting meat inside of the jar. And then he locked it, closed it tight and put it there in front of all of the people to see. He said, is there anything alive in there right now? 
rotting old meat. Nothing alive in there. Everybody saw. He didn't put anything alive in there. Just rotting old meat and closed it up tight. And left it there in front of everyone to see. And it remained there. It stayed there. Everybody can see it. There's no tampering going on with it. No cheating. It's there. Everybody can see it for a day, for two days. Then they come back. And he says to them, look at the jar now. And when they look at this jar or this bottle now, and it hasn't been opened all that time, it's been there for everybody to see. Nobody's touched it. Nobody's opened it. Nobody's put anything inside. He says, look, what do you see? And they see movement inside. There are things moving inside of the jar. They are the maggots. The maggots. He says, look how I have created life inside of the jar. Two days ago when he put the rotting meat in there, was there anything moving? Because the maggots, they're in there, but there's nothing happening, there's no movement. Two days later, all of a sudden, the maggots have come out now, and they're moving around now. He says, look, never open the jar as it was, and look how I have created life inside of this jar. They say though, that there was a very smart boy in the audience. And so that boy said to this man, that you claim you have created <coughs> life inside of the bottle, inside of this sealed jar. You created this life. And obviously maggots, they're everywhere inside that dirty meat. Lots of them moving around everywhere inside. He says, you created all of this life, you say. So tell us, how many of them did you give life to? How many maggots are in there? So now this man is looking, he doesn't know. 20, 30, 40, 50, 56, 63. How many are there inside? They're moving everywhere. You can't even count them. They're crossing this way, that way. One, two, three, you get mixed up again. The boy said, you say you gave life to all of these living things in there. How many living things did you create in there? Since you gave them life, you must know how many of them you gave life to. Was it 63? Was it 59? Was it 112? How many maggots did you give life to? Obviously he could not respond. He didn't know. You can't even count them moving everywhere. Then the boy said to him, since you, you apparently gave them life, then you are obviously also going to give them death. So when are you going to give them death? We'd like to know. When will all of those maggots eventually die? Because if you don't open the jar, just leave it, leave it, leave it. Eventually everything in there will die. They eat the meat and whatever. In the end they die. Leave it sealed, closed. Eventually there will come a time everything inside is dead. The boy said, you gave them all life. Tell us when you are going to give them all death. Which day shall we come back and they'll all be dead? So again... He knows he's not the one giving them life and death. 
He doesn't know when they're all going to die. He can't say to them, okay, in 24 hours I'm going to give them death. But in 24 hours if they come back and there are still some moving around? Or he says, I'm going to give them death in a week. They come back in a week and there's still some moving around? He can't give an answer. If he says, in one month, but then in two days they come back and everything's dead, they say, you said a month, why are they all dead? So he cannot give an answer when they are all going to die because he knows he's not the one giving them death. He is not the one creating this life and he is not the one giving death to this life. And so they say that smart boy refuted this man with those two questions. How many have you given life to then? And when are you going to give them death? So this indicated to every. <coughs> <laughs> to everybody, that the individual, this man was a liar, he is not the one giving life, he is not the one giving death. Because that is an action which is specific and singled out to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, Rabb, the one who gives life, the one who gives death. The one who gives life and the one who gives death, and we specify those actions and make them single and unique to Allah. Nobody else can give life and death. Nobody else is able to do that. Nobody else can participate in that. And yet, of course, the disbelievers, due to them not understanding these affairs, not understanding Arab. <coughs> there are those now, they have all of these, whatever they call them, the cryo chambers and things and all these, where they freeze your body. You pay them thousands and thousands of dollars. And there are some institutes, I think in the USA and other places, after you pay them hundreds and thousands, maybe millions, I don't remember, the rich people, they pay them all of this money. And that company has these special chambers in this special type of bomb-proof building. And they put your body into one of these chambers at minus 200 degrees or something. And they insert certain chemicals into your body to keep your body frozen. Because their claim is that one day in the future, maybe it will be discovered how to bring the dead back to life. So you pay us all of these hundreds and thousands, we'll make sure your body is kept, preserved, up until that time, 50,000, whatever, thousands of years in the future, they finally find out, our building will be here, your body will be preserved, and then we'll come and bring you back to life in the future. So they pay. They pay. The ones who have nothing upstairs, they pay. <laughs> They pay all of this money and they have their bodies frozen and chemicals injected to preserve their body. And that can be done. You insert the chemicals and lower the temperatures and the body won't rot away. The body is preserved and the head is preserved. And they keep that all intact. Take all of that money with the contract that one day in the future, if they discover how to bring people back to life, then our promise to you in the contract is we'll bring you back to life at that time. And they do not know that all of that hundreds and thousands of dollars has gone to absolute waste. 
They will never be brought back to life except on Yawmul Qiyamah. And that is for every individual that will be raised, every individual will be resurrected on Yawmul Qiyamah. And it does not require payment, and it does not require special chambers, and it does not require that you are even buried. We always talk about the punishment of the grave and the blessings of the grave. But what if somebody is never buried and never goes to a grave? What if somebody drowns in the sea? Or somebody's burnt in a fire, nothing left of his body? Or somebody's eaten by a lion, nothing left of his body, nothing to bury? Doesn't matter. Yawmul Qiyamah, all of them will be resurrected again. The one who was torn to bits by a lion, the one who was burnt until nothing was left of his body, the one who was crushed under a bit, whatever it may be, they will all be resurrected on that day, on the day of judgment. Yawmul Qiyamah, the day of standing. So Arab is the one who gives life and death, and he alone can give that life, and he alone gives that death. <coughs> also, from the meanings of the name Ar-Rabb, I think about all of these, many people they say, Ya Rabb, and they make dua. What do you mean when you say, Ya Rabb? Who is the Rabb? These are the meanings we're talking about. Another one of them, is that Ar-Rabb is the one who controls all of the universe. Al-Mudabbir. The one who controls everything that happens in the universe. And we've spoken about the decree in other lessons that Allah knows about the past, Allah knows about the present, Allah knows about the future, and Allah knows about the things that never happened in the past, present, or the future. But if they did happen, and they had happened, Allah knows how they would have happened. Allah knows what happened in the past, what is happening in the present, what is going to happen in the future, and even those things that never happened in the past, or present, or future, if they had happened... If Allah knows how they would have happened to. So the knowledge of Allah encompasses everything. Every sound is heard by Allah. Every language is heard by Allah. Every dua. No. So every dua is heard by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Every sound is heard. Every movement is known. Everything is within the knowledge of Allah. And so Allah is the one who controls all of the universe. That is an action singled out to Allah alone. No one else has any ability to control anything in this universe. Nobody else decides what happens. Nobody else has the decree. It is Allah who decrees everything. And all of that control of the universe returns back to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. These are all from the meanings of Ar-Rabb. 
These are all from the meanings of Ar-Rububiyyah, the Lordship of Allah. <coughs> so you can see there, several other names of Allah were being mentioned when talking about the meaning of Ar-Rab. Several other, Al-Hayyu, Al-Qayyum, these kinds of names they come in, Al-Muhyi, Al-Mumit, the one who gives life, the one who gives death, the one who sustains, Al-Qayyum, sustains himself and sustains others. So you notice there that this name Arab, it includes many other names. And that is because Arab, when you think about it carefully, it does incorporate all of the other names and attributes. Ibn al-Qayyim, he mentioned that. Other scholars have spoken about that. That the name Arab, it incorporates and includes all of the other names and attributes of Allah. One thing you may notice sometimes in the Arabic language, that the word Rab can linguistically be used, linguistically just in the language talking about someone, it can be used so not to become confused. You can say, for example, Man Rabbu Hadidda. Who is the Rabb of this house? In Arabic, you can say that. Because just in the language, Rabb means the owner. Who's the owner of this house? In the normal Arabic language, it can just mean that. Who is the Rabb of this house? Meaning, who's the owner of this house? So not to become confused if you see something like that, it is possible in Arabic. 
But here, Ar-Rabbu, Ar-Rabbu, the Lord, then that is the name of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. We should should also mention that Ar-Rabb, you understand the meaning of At-Tarbiyah from it. That Allah nurtures or cultivates all of the meanings we've been speaking about. Allah provides and sustains and gives life and death. And this is in two ways. This tarbiyah, this nurturing or cultivation of Allah to His creation is in two ways. One is the general way. In the general way, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, He looks after or provides for all of His creation, including the non-Muslims, including the zalim, the oppressors and the wrongdoers, the evil people, they are still breathing air and they are still drinking water and they are still eating, they are still being provided with all of those things. So the general type of arububiyyah in that regard is that it encompasses everyone. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, His rububiyyah, it encompasses all of the creation in that sense. The sustenance, the provisions, the control of the affairs and the decree, it is upon everyone. But then there is a specific type of arububiyyah, of the lordship of Allah upon His creation. And that specific lordship of Allah upon His creation is the lordship upon the Believers, the Lordship of Allah upon His believers, uh, upon the righteous, tarbiyah, khasah, li-awliyaihi haythu rabbahum, fawaffaqahum lil-imani bihi, wal-qiyami bi-ibudiyyatih, that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has given that insight, has given that guidance, has given that nurturing to a believer that he has the faith and the iman in his heart, and he has the correct aqidah, and he fulfills his obedience and worship to Allah, and he is guided to the straight path, then that is a tarbiyah, that is specific to the believers. So there is a general tarbiyah, a general type of this nurturing or cultivation from Allah upon His creation. And then there is a specific type of the rububiyah upon the creation. We briefly touched upon last time 
the connection between al-rububiyyah and al-uluhiyyah. When it comes to this one now, al-rububiyyah, that we single out Allah with His actions, such as giving life, giving death, creating all of the creation, sustaining and providing for all of the creation, all of those affairs. This rububiyyah, this lordship of Allah, was it something rejected by the kuffar, the disbelievers in the nations that went by? So the disbelievers used to accept on the whole al-rububiyyah. There are some who claimed to reject it, like Fir'aun, Pharaoh at the time of Musa, alayhi salam. Pharaoh tried or attempted to show that he rejects the rububiyyah of Allah. And he said to them all, Ana Rabbukum al-A'la. I am your Lord. I am your Rabb the Most High. That is what Pharaoh said to the people at the time of Musa alayhi salam. But in reality he knew. In reality deep down they all knew. They cannot create. They cannot give life. They cannot give death. They do not control the affairs and the universe. They didn't create it. They knew all of that deep down. So the kuffar and the disbelievers at the time of the prophets and the messengers, not just at the time of Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wasallam, but even at the time of the other prophets and messengers, they never really argued with their prophets and messengers over the issue of ar they never said to the prophets, we're not going to follow you because we don't believe Allah is the creator. They never said, we're not going to follow you because we don't believe Allah is the one who created this whole universe and that He's the one who gives life and death or that He's the one who sends the rain. They never argued with their prophets and their messengers about those things. They never argued about those things. So they accepted al-rububiyyah. That Allah is the creator, Allah is the provider, Allah is the one who controls everything. <coughs> How do we know this? Because Allah told us in the Qur'an, Allah told us in the Qur'an that the disbelievers, they accepted this. In the Qur'an there are different examples. وَلَئِن سَأَلْتَهُمْ مَنْ خَلَقَهُمْ لَيَقُولُنَّ اللَّهِ لَيَقُولُنَّ اللَّهِ if you were to ask them, it says in the Qur'an, if you were to ask them, the kuffar, the mushrikun, who created them, they will say, definitely, absolutely it was Allah. They will say, definitely, absolutely, it's of course Allah. لَيَقُولُنَّ Allah. This is emphasized in the Qur'an. They will say, absolutely, definitely, of course Allah. They accepted that. So then why weren't they Muslims? They accepted Allah is the creator and the provider. Allah is the sustainer. Allah is the one who created the universe. 
Allah is the one who controls the universe, then why weren't they Muslims? Huh? Which means if they associated partners to Allah, they weren't implementing Al-Uluhiyyah. The problem was in the previous topic that we were talking about last time. Allah Al-Uluhiyyah, which means to single out Allah with our worship, our actions. They believed Allah is the creator, the provider, the sustainer, the one who gives life and death. But they did not do all of their worship purely and sincerely for Allah. Even though they accepted the rububiyyah, they still did their worship for others besides Him. وَمِنَ النَّاسِ مَنْ يَتَّخِذُ مِن دُونِ اللَّهِ أَنْدَادًا يُحِبُّونَهُمْ كَحُبِّ اللَّهِ وَالَّذِينَ آمَنُوا أَشَدُّ حُبًّا لِلَّهِ There are those who take partners alongside Allah. Allah tells us in the Qur'an about the mushrikun. There are those who take partners alongside Allah. Other statues and other false gods and false deities and they love them just like they claim also to love Allah they love them as they love Allah but the believers their love is pure and sincere to Allah alone so Allah tells us that the mushrikun what they were doing was splitting their worship between Allah, they worshipped Allah, but also their idols and their false gods and their false deities, they couldn't abandon them. So that means they were not implementing al-uluhiyyah, the worship of Allah alone, they weren't doing it. They weren't doing it to Allah alone. They were doing it to Allah and to others. And that therefore means you are not upon Tawheed and you are not Muslim. So a person should not think if somebody tells you, of course Allah is the creator. Of course Allah is the provider. Of course Allah is the one who gives life and death. Of course Allah is the one who controls the universe. Those statements alone are not what is required for a person to enter into Islam. Rather what is required is for that person to single out his actions of worship to Allah alone. That's why, remember this principle, we mentioned it before. Allah mentions Ar-Rububiyyah in the Qur'an a lot. That He is the Creator, He is the Provider, He is the Sustainer, He's the one who gives life and death. Allah mentions those things about Rububiyyah in the Qur'an a lot. But why? If the Mushrikun didn't have a problem with that issue, then why does Allah still mention it so much in the Qur'an? Anybody from the back rows? Mm-hmm. 
Even though the mushrikun accepted al-rububiyyah, Allah still mentioned it in the Qur'an a lot. Why? Because the reality is, if you accept al-rububiyyah, and remember this, it therefore necessitates that you must implement al-uluhiyyah. If you accept al-rububiyyah, you accept that only Allah is the creator, only Allah is the one who gives life and death, only Allah is the one who can provide for you. Only Allah is the one who controls everything. Not the dead people in the graves, not even the prophets and messengers, not even Muhammad wasallam. only Allah. Then you should worship only Allah. Very simple, easy to understand. How can it be, you tell me if the opposite works. If somebody says, only Allah is the creator, only Allah is the provider, only Allah gives life and death, only Allah controls the universe, but I'm going to go and worship something else that is not the creator, not the provider, not the one who gives life and death, not the one who controls the universe, but I'm still going to go worship him. What? Does that make any sense? Not at all. How can you worship something which has no control over the universe? How can you worship something that does not give life and death? How can you worship something that doesn't give you sustenance, cannot hear your dua, cannot answer your dua? How can you worship something that doesn't have a rububiyyah? So if you accept the Lordship of Allah, He alone is the creator, provider, sustainer, then you are necessitated, obligated to only worship Him. How can you say, yes, of course, Allah alone is the creator, provider, giver of life and death, but then you go to the grave of some so-called wali, and you start sacrificing at the grave for him, or you start going there making dua, Ya Wali Allah, help me with this, help me with that. Why are you making dua to him? Is he the creator? Is he the provider? Is he the sustainer? Is he the one who will answer your dua for you? How can you make your dua to others besides Allah? How can you put your trust in others besides Allah? How can you have your hearts connected to others besides Allah? Not even other people, objects. How many people wear strings, little strings? And they say, yes, this will bring me good luck. Is that string the creator, the provider, the sustainer, the one that controls the universe? A piece of string, it gets stuck somewhere, falls off on the floor, that's it, gone. People that wear necklaces around their necks, certain types of necklaces, and sometimes they write some Qur'an in it and other things. These kinds of things, that is not where you put your dependence and your trust in. Your dependence and your reliance and the one you call upon in times of distress is not this and is not this and is not the ring. It is only Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala not to put your reliance and trust in a ring 
or sometimes on the car they hang certain things off the car, saying this will protect us from the evil eye in the car, and it will protect us from having an accident. Even the kuffar, the mushrikun, <coughs> they do exactly those things. I remember on one occasion, going somewhere to buy a car from a, an individual, when I got there, I realized he was, he told me what denomination he was, uh, one of the Christian denominations. He was a practicing Christian of this particular denomination, this particular group of Christians. And when I bought the car, he cleared everything out, he picked up all his things, and he left one badge that was on the windscreen on the inside of the car. He took everything else out. And the badge, he said, I'm going to leave this for you. Looked at it and he said, you know, and he, he could see obviously I'm Muslim. He said, obviously I know that you're not upon my same understanding and faith. But you know this, we, he was European. He said, you know, we believe in our church that this is the saint such and such. I forgot the name. This is one of the great saints. There was a picture on the badge of, you know, how they believe the saints with the beard and the cloak and those kinds of things. There was a saint, maybe a man or a woman even, I don't remember, but a saint. He said, we believe this particular saint protects you. And we believe if you put this badge in your car, you won't get into a car accident. So I'm going to leave this for you. Of course, he didn't stay there for two seconds. <laughs> but he said, I'm going to leave this for you. You won't get into an accident if you keep this here. Now you tell me, if I didn't tell you that was a Christian, that story, you will have probably heard of it from a hundred Muslims. They put things in their car, not a saint, but other things. Some type of badge or some other little writing or, or some amulet or talisman, the taweez as they call it put all these different things, it's the same. They believe these things are going to protect us from accidents, from evil eye. They do it on their houses, on their front doors, different things. But Arab, he is the one alone, who is the creator, the provider, the one who controls the universe, the one who decrees everything. Not the string on your hand, or the ring on your finger, or the necklace, or on your car, or whatever. There are many narrations when the Prophet ﷺ told them to go and cut all of these things off. In the olden days, they used to put these strings around the necks of the camels, the Arabs. Around their camels, they used to put a string like a necklace, believing this will keep the camels safe from the evil eye. So the Prophet ﷺ told one of the companions to go, any camel he sees with one of those strings, cut it off. Another time the Prophet saw a man wearing this type of bracelet. And the man thought that this bracelet would help him to get better because he had some type of hand problem, a weakness in his hand, some muscle problem, some weakness in his hand. And so he was wearing a bracelet thinking that this bracelet somehow it gives you some power in your hand and fixes your hand and uh, uh, brings health back to your hand. So again, he was told, rip it off. Get rid of it. If you die with this upon you, you'll not be successful. Why? Because these, that band, 
What is it? Nothing. It is not the provider, the sustainer, the one that gives life and death, the one that controls the universe. Nothing. A piece of band that was made by somebody else in a factory. That doesn't do anything for you. So here, Al-Uluhiyah, Al-Rububiyah, these two together are the key. And then after that, you come to Al-Asma'u Wa-Sifat, the different names and attributes of Allah, and there are many other names. For example, now, <coughs> when you read Al-Fatiha, Alhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen. What do you notice in that ayah? All praises to Allah, the Lord of everything in creation. What's in that ayah? Allah and Rabb, both. Alhamdulillahi, Allah. Lillahi, Rabbil Alameen. That's Al-Uluhiyyah, Al-Rububiyyah. Then after that comes the next line. Ar-Rahman, Ar-Rahim. Those are two of the, more of the names of Allah. And those are the two names, insha'Allah ta'ala, we'll pick up on from the next lesson. In two weeks time, insha'Allah ta'ala. If there's any questions or anything, we have five minutes or four minutes, if anybody has anything, otherwise we'll conclude there. No, not necessarily, because we know that they generally accepted Arububiyyah. But this was their, their state, which is something that defies logic. They accept Arububiyyah. They accept Allah is the one that does these things. Yet upon their minds and their deviation that the shaitan has put them into, they still can't let go of their other deities. The uncle of the Prophet ﷺ, Abu Talib, died as a non-Muslim. And when he was dying, Ibn Kathir mentions in Al-Bidayah and Nihayah, apparently it is mentioned that Abu Talib said, it is only because, or was it not for the blameworthiness that I feel against my forefathers, then I would have accepted the religion of Muhammad. What blameworthiness is he talking about? Was it not for the shame or the blameworthiness that I feel that I'm going against my forefathers? I would have accepted this religion. Blameworthiness upon what? If you accept the religion of Islam, you have to abandon all the other deities that his forefathers all worshipped. He said, I feel like it's blameworthy that it's bad of me to go against my forefathers and abandon all of these deities. If it wasn't for that, I would have accepted. Ibn Kathir mentions some poetry that Abu Talib is supposed to have mentioned before he died. Blameworthiness, they couldn't let go. This was their religion, their forefathers, the idols, the deities, they were attached to that. Even though they accepted the rububiyyah, and they knew the reality of it because when they were out on the ocean, 
and the waves came upon their ships and they were about to sink. They knew the rububiyyah is only for Allah. They only made the dua sincerely to Allah. But when they came back to land, again they go and commit their shirk. You can say it is similar to the case of Fir'aun. People claiming to disbelieve in Ar-Rububiyyah, atheism and whatever it might be. <coughs> you could say generally, there is no such thing. It's possible to say, and it's been mentioned by some scholars, that deep down everybody knows the reality. And it's like they give the example, people say, I don't believe. There are people, they will say, they don't believe in God. They don't believe there's any such thing as God. They don't believe in any of these things. But when they're on the airplane and it starts crashing, Oh my God! The speech comes out of their mouth naturally. And yet all their lives arguing, Oh no, there's no, there's no God, there's no God, no God. The plane starts going down, you see that, Oh my God! So, scholars have mentioned, reality is that deep down, a person... Is we already know every person is definitely born upon that truth, upon that understanding, and it is a claim that they attempt to make, an argument that they are forcing themselves to make, but a person cannot reject the reality that you see around you from the signs upon the rububiyyah of Allah the Creator. Anybody else? Al-Uluhiyya, in a nutshell, is to single out Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala with all forms of our worship. Whether it is worship from our hearts, like trust and dependence, those things I was mentioning, or worship upon our tongue, dhikr and dua and supplication and recitation, or worship upon our limbs, physically moving, prayer, hajj, Every form of our worship, we single it out to Allah alone. Dua, we don't make it to the dead or anybody else. To Allah alone, every act of worship. That is essentially al uluhiyah Brother, what is the definition of worship? Is it just to individual worship as ritual or does it encompass more than it? Does it encompass? More than, more than individual no, no, worship is like Shaykh al-Islam, he mentioned, كُلُّ مَا يُحِبُّهُ اللَّهُ وَيَرْضَاهُ مِنَ الْأَقْوَالِ وَالْأَفْعَالِ الظَّاهِرَ وَالْبَاطِنَةِ Worship is everything that Allah loves from statements, from actions, whether they are apparent and public or they are something private and hidden. Every action that Allah loves and is pleased with from statements and actions, whether apparent or hidden, it's worship. How do we know then, the question obviously is then, what are the things that Allah loves then? Everything Allah loves is worship. So what are the things that Allah loves? How are we going to find out what Allah loves? Simply checking into the Qur'an and the Sunnah and the understanding of the companions of this Ummah, or the Salaf of this Ummah. We find out all of the religion in the hadith, in the Qur'an, what Allah loves. That is what we do. قُلْ إِن كُنْتُمْ تُحِبُّونَ اللَّهِ فَاتَّبِعُونِي Say that if you truly love Allah, then follow me. Follow the messenger in what Allah wants us to do. What do we 
So there are many people who go to the graves and they say, look, I accept what you've been talking about. I'm not worshipping this dead person. I'm just asking him to take my dua to Allah for me. I'm asking Allah through him. Because he was a great wali from the awliya of Allah. He was a great imam, great maulana. But I am a miskeen. Uh, you know, me, I, do, I, I smoke and I do this and I do that. But you know, so that's why I thought I'll come here, I'll make the dua, not to worship him and ask him to answer my dua, just to do it to him, asking him to take my dua to Allah, because he was a righteous person. If he takes my dua to Allah, there's more chance of it being answered. But that argument, firstly, is exactly 100% the same argument that the disbelievers at the time of the Prophet ﷺ used. And Allah told us that in the Qur'an, They used to say, these are just our intercessors between us and Allah. Intercessor meaning middleman. These are just the middlemen between us and Allah. They're just taking our dua to Allah. We're not worshipping them. Shufa'auna Allah. In the other ayah, مَا نَعْبُدُهُمْ إِلَّا لِيُقَرِّبُونَ إِلَى اللَّهِ زُلْفَاءِ They said, we don't worship them, except that they bring us closer to Allah. That they are just going to get us closer to Allah. It's not about worshipping them, it's about getting closer to Allah. That's exactly what the mushrikun used to say. So if a Muslim comes along and says that now, he said almost the same as what the mushrikun used to say. On top of that, on top of that, this action of going to the righteous people in their graves, assuming they are righteous. Sometimes they're not even righteous. People claim they were righteous. But assuming you go to somebody righteous. That action, is it something verified to be done in the sunnah? When the Prophet ﷺ died, and there were the great companions like Abu Bakr and Umar and Uthman and Ali radiallahu anhum, Aisha radiallahu anha, Great companions. But were they at the level of the messenger? Obviously not. So when the messenger died, did they used to think, well, why don't we go to the grave of the messenger and ask him to be the intercessor for our dua? Because he is not just the best of us, he's the best of the whole of mankind. Why not go to him and make the intercession and ask him to take our dua to Allah? Would that not be the obvious thing to do then? The best of all of mankind, not like these people say now, he was a great wali or great maulana, the best of all of mankind. Go to his grave and ask him to take our dua to Allah. Did Abu Bakr ever do that? Did Aisha ever do that? Umar, Uthman, Ali, radiallahu anhum. Not a single one of them. So how come? Was it because the companions weren't clever enough to think of that idea? But now, mashallah, we thought of it. Let's go to these righteous people. They'll take our dua to Allah. Are you smarter than the companions? No chance. They loved the messenger more. They were more knowledgeable of the religion. And they didn't do this. So what are you saying? They didn't think of it, but you thought of it? It cannot be. So when we talk about doing actions and worship, they must be legislated in the religion. You have to give us proof. They may say, but there's an ayah, there's a hadith. Then you say to them, okay, excellent. There's an ayah, there's a hadith. 
you say, proves going to the dead and asking them to take your dua to Allah. But if that ayah and the hadith actually proves that, then how come Abu Bakr never understood it? The companions, they missed this ayah, they missed this hadith, they didn't get it, that there's an ayah there, there's a hadith there, let's go to the grave of the messenger. Are you going to sit there and tell me the companions, they missed it? But your shaykh, mashallah, looked at it and found it? It cannot be. That's why we say Qur'an and Sunnah with the understanding of, not your imam, not this imam, not me, not anyone, with the understanding of the Salaf, Abu Bakr, Umar, Uthman, the companions who were with the messenger and learned directly from the messenger, they are the ones who are going to know how to do things. They are the ones who are going to know if this ayah means you can go to the graves of the dead. And it definitely doesn't. Because if it did, they would have been the first ones to implement it and go to the grave of the messenger. Just like the birthday now. They say, but there's an ayah and there's a hadith. The Prophet said I was born on a Monday. Yes. But did any of the companions ever understand from these narrations? Therefore, we should celebrate the birthday. None of them did for 400 years afterwards, no one did. And then suddenly somebody did, mashaAllah. So you see, the religion is not something we make up and we work out and our imam tells us. It is evidences of what the Qur'an and the sunnah says upon the understanding of the salam. So it is impermissible in a form of shirk that you go and make dua via others for it to be taken to Allah. Allah has never told us to do that. Rather, Allah tells us to make dua to Him. Ad-dua huwa al-ibadah in the hadith. Dua, it is the core of worship. In the ayah, وَإِذَا سَأَلَكَ عِبَادِي عَنِّي فَإِنِّي قَرِيبٌ أُجِيبُ دَعْوَةَ الدَّعِي إِذَا دَعَانٌ My servant asks you about me, then I am close. I answer the dua of the one who calls upon me. In the hadith, يَنزِلُ رَبُّنَا إِلَى سَمَاءِ الدُّنْيَا إِذَا بَقِيَ ثُلُثُ اللَّيْلِ الْأَخِيرِ when the last third of the night remains, then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala descends to the lowest heaven and He says, Man Who is seeking my forgiveness and I will forgive him? Who is asking me and I will give him? Who is seeking repentance and I will give him? So the dua is made directly to Allah, not by others. We'll have to conclude upon that for today. The prayer is here. We'll continue in two weeks inshallah ta'ala.